In addition to several travel books, Anne Majette has co-authored two books on music, The King and I, about manager Herbert Breslin's relationship with Luciano Pavarotti, and My Nine Lives with Leanne Fleischer, talking about his varied career in music. These two books show so many different sides to classical music, from the business side to the philosophical and artistic side. We end by discussing a work in progress, a historical novel about Nanette Streicher, who built pianos for Beethoven. Well, you've also written several books, several very popular books. The King and I, written by uh, Herbert uh, Breslin, who was uh, Pavarotti's manager, uh, basically about his relationship with Pavarotti. And then My Nine Lives uh, that you wrote with Leon Fleischer. And I had, well, I have a lot of questions for you about these books. Um, a couple of general questions. The first would be the tone of those two, two books is completely different. Um, and it sounds to me like the, the Breslin book is like he's talking to somebody. And the Leon Fleischer book sounds like this is something that I've, I've heard interviews with him now. And he's very articulate. But it also reads like like it's it's quiet and thoughtful, like perhaps he he did a lot of writing in Breslin, perhaps he dictated an awful lot. And and Breslin sounds I he could have had a soft voice, but he's he comes across the page loud. And Leon Fleischer comes across the page, I wouldn't say soft, but um thoughtful and reserved, let's say. Was it really different having those two different tones? And, and did Breslin actually basically just sort of talk to you and you would record him? Or how did that work? I can't tell you how flattered I am at this entire question. The premise of the question is flattering. Um, How's, why? It's a, lot, it's a lot of work to do these books. And um, you can't just take what somebody says to you and turn it into a book. It, it will sound like crap. It's not organized. You can tell some books that are done like that, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the, the trick of being an author on a book like that is you've got to make it sound like the person. You've got to try to make something or create something that sounds like it could be the person. And it can't sound just like spoken text, but it can't sound like written text. So you just try to capture who they are. It's like a snapshot of the person. And the other, you know, thing about those books is these were both men in their 80s, and there are gaps in the, in the memory. There are gaps in how it all fits together. And you've got to do a lot of detective work and a lot of other interviews to just even piece together the narrative chronologically, you know, to make it make sense. Because you, wait a minute, you said that this happened there, and then you said that that happened there, and those two things were not possible, you know. So... Both of those books are completely written by me on the basis of hours of interviews. Um, and the process was very similar for both the books in terms of just sitting there with a tape recorder and the subject and talking and asking questions and um, talking to other people in their lives. It's presented differently in the different books. Um, the Breslin book, I, I break out. I have little excerpts from other people, little quotes from other people. In the Fleischer book, I don't have that as much. Um, but both are very informed by people who generously spoke to me. Um, and and yeah, they were just very different people. But I'm really relieved that you say that because I've always been worried they might sound a little bit the same. So. Oh, no, no. <laughs> to me, they sent, they sounded completely different. And and it's it's even more surprising now that you said that you wrote both of those books basically by yourself because the writing is so different in the books. Well, they both, I mean, they both carefully read through them. They each had their own way of working on it, but, but the reading through was more in the nature of corrections and, you know, or, you know, maybe I don't want to say this or I'd like to say that, but 
but no, in no sense did either one of them write those books. I mean, that's that's what a co-author is for, you know. Like Prince Harry didn't sit down there with a pencil either, you know what uh-huh. I mean? Um, we, um, well, first of all, which book came to you first? Oh, the Pavarotti book. The Pavarotti book was published in two thousand four, and the Fleischer book was published in two thousand ten. Okay, and how did they come to you? I mean, how did you, how did you get contacted for this? <laughs> they both. I was sitting on the same sofa and the phone rang, both cases. It was absolutely insane because books don't really work like that. Um, The Pavarotti book, um, they had a different writer. And the writer and Herbert Breslin had a falling out. And so Doubleday had the idea, which they liked, but they needed a writer. And they called my husband um, because Steve Rubin, who was at the time the publisher of Doubleday and who, whose idea this was, who was the first person in America to interview Pavarotti way back when Pavarotti first came over, um, had worked with my husband during the brief period when Steve was at Vanity Fair. And so Greg had written for him. So we contacted Greg to say, maybe you're interested. And Greg said, gosh, maybe if I was 20 years younger. And he came out to tell me about this. And I said, I am 20 years younger. <laughs> but but uh, evidently, Greg had also said, maybe my wife would already, Greg had said, maybe my wife would be interested in Steve. And said, oh, that's your wife. And, you know, this. so so it was really out of the blue. I'd only been at the Times for about a year. And I was so sure it was going to ruin my reputation that I was going to do this, you know, schlocky mass market book and nobody would ever take me seriously as a New York Times critic again. Um which is amusing because it was a great decision and it didn't have that much effect on my career at all, really, one way or another. But it was it was a really great experience to write that book. It was intense and challenging, and Herbert was a heck of a character. But um, and and ironically, Herbert was a very controversial and widely disliked figure in the classical music business, and he was wonderful to me. He he could not have been more wonderful to me. He was just, I mean, he was a difficult grumpy kind of guy but he was he was great to me he was smart too and he was funny and i'm you know one of the few people that has really just lovely things to say about herbert yeah well i've got i have a lot more questions about him but one more sort of general question is when i i don't know if you've read um robert carroll who's written about lyndon johnson and yeah lyndon johnson yeah he always says that you know my books are not about great people but they're about power and if I think of your your two books, if you take Breslin and Fleischer away, I think the Breslin book is about business, the the business side of music, and Fleischer book is about the philosophy and the art of of music. Um, does that make sense to you? It, it does make sense. I mean, again, I tried to present the two men as they were, and they are both you know, very insightful about very particular aspects of the field. Um, to me, also, the Breslin book is the narrative of the relationship of two very prickly, particular guys, Breslin and Pavarotti, and their sort of rise and fall. And you get the arc of the relationship, which is, I think, what makes it an interesting book. It's not and it was very important to me not to try to whitewash Breslin, because as I said, he was very controversial. Many people didn't like him. And so to present him as a good guy would be counterfactual. And it's really to Herbert's credit that he allowed himself to be presented in this way that many people reading the book said, oh, what an awful man. <laughs> you know. Um, but, but I saw it as sort of two 
I don't know, lovable rogues in a way, and and how they ultimately foundered. And it's an interesting, I thought that was a compelling narrative. It's more just than I made him great, you know, it's sort of like how, what does it look like to become that famous and then to sort of ride the downward crest of it? Um, and Fleischer's was much more a straight ahead book. And also the hope with the Fleischer book was it could be an inspiring story about regaining the use of your hand after years and what a pianist does when he can't play the piano and how you continue with a life in music and can shape a successful life in music. And then at the end, regain the use of your hand again. It's almost a parable. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Well, with um, with the Pavarotti book. I remember hearing years ago, somebody told me that the way management works is that the the top one or two percent of managers control ninety eight percent of of the work. Um, and it seems like in the in the world of opera, Breslin was maybe the top one or two percent of the top one or two percent. and i'm I'm wondering, do you think that gives a fairly representative view of of management? and in other words, let's say a couple of other top managers like or companies like Columbia and um, IMG, for example, would they sort of operate in the same way or was Breslin sort of no. almost like no. a rogue um, actor? Breslin was definitely a rogue because Breslin started as a publicist and he was Pavarotti's publicist. Right. And he kind of transformed himself into his manager slash advisor. But he, I don't know how much, like there were, Pavarotti and other people also doing bookings, you know. And um, so, so Breslin, yeah, was very much a kind of, outsider and he was a publicist for a lot of people and he later also became a manager um but he was his greatest clients were his publicity clients up until Pavarotti and he was most successful with Pavarotti although certainly he had other people he managed um and I don't think that's representative at all of the big companies like Columbia or you know, Ronald Wilford that are much more measured in the way they deal with people yeah or at least not as overtly rude I don't think many of them slam down the phone with expletives when you get on their nerves you know Breslin yeah, yeah. was really <laughs> was, was, was Breslin pr- profane with you because that's oh yes really <laughs> yes. Oh, okay <laughs> Breslin Breslin was was cheerfully profane and um I mean Breslin was amazing because well I really tried to capture him in the book and it went Another great compliment I got for the book is after it came out, his son said, this is great. It's just like my father, only organized. <laughs> and Breslin <laughs> would just throw all this stuff at you and uh-huh. see what stuck. You know, he would come out with like 20 ideas and two of them were brilliant. And a lot of them were just terrible ideas. And um, and he would be very sort of hard nosed about it. But I think it gives an interesting look into the world of opera. I think it's insightful and sort of things that went on in those days and how singers worked and how the business worked. But I don't think it gives you a sense of what it was like to be an agent back then so much. Do you think his legacy has changed from the time uh, that he was working and from his death to now? And that style of of management? Pavarotti's or Breslin's? Breslin's, yeah. Well, Breslin was so widely hated that I don't know that anybody would want to admit the legacy. I remember one of my favorite reviews was written by one of my editors and a friend, but he reviewed the book for Opera News and he said, um, where he was an editor, and he said, I used to think of Breslin as a foul-mouthed, depraved, you know, son of a bitch, sort of. And he said, this book has changed my view. I now think of him as a lovable, foul-mouthed, depraved son of a bitch. <laughs> and, uh-huh. So um, I, I hope that, you know, people reading it in the future might sort of see... I don't know. I mean, I think it's a fun book. I think it's a fun read and I stand by it. And it would be nice if people saw Herbert as 
a smart guy, but again, there are many people who will hear this and be like, you were whitewashing all the terrible things he did to me, and I can't speak to that, you know? Yeah. Um, well, the Fleischer book, to me, I saw, after I read the book, I saw some interviews with, with Fleischer, and I mean, he's so intelligent and such a great musician, and in a way, I wonder if, if, if you were intimidated by him, but at the same time on these, these interviews, it's, it seems like he loves to tell stories. Too. He loves to tell stories. He is a great raconteur. Um, he was old. I mean, you know, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he was already old when we started working. And um, he had his favorite stories. You know, he had his favorite stories. And uh, and they were so beautifully polished. But sometimes you had to dig a little bit to get, you know, behind the favorite stories. Um, but yeah, he like he was fascinating because you know what it takes to be a musician who can play the same Beethoven sonata 500 times and make it amazing and fresh and new every time. Um, he brought to everything he did. So his teaching, his anecdotes, they all had that air of, he was just able to deliver things in a way that made them immediate and meaningful. And I would sit in a room with him and watch the audience just melt when he was telling his stories and talking. And it was really a gift. It was a real charisma. One thing that's really unique about the book is that there are five master classes in the book where he talks about some of his favorite pieces. Was that your idea or was that his idea? That was idea? my idea. That was my I was trying to think, how can we write a book? That's a great idea. Well, because you want to present Fleischer, who is music. You know, he's like music incarnate. But the problem with some of these books is that they bog down when they get to the musical part. And you also want to attract an audience who's in it for the inspiration of how he got his hand back. And I thought, okay, we do the master classes and then it's it's framed and if you're somebody who doesn't want to hear about the beethoven you can turn the page or maybe you'll be less intimidated by reading about the beethoven if you if you have it sort of pulled out for you um i feel like a lot of times in in music books it can kind of bog down when you get into the technical bits and the more you can break it up the better yeah i mean i thought that was great and and um well, and thanks. to hear him play some of these pieces that he talks about uh yeah. is yeah. Just, is just beautiful so uh, yeah, that was great. And he talked a couple of a couple of quotes that I thought were great uh, from Schnabel. Actually, um, was first hear, then play. And um, in the trumpet world, the most famous orchestral trumpet player, he's really iconic uh, player. He passed away. Oh, I don't know, maybe five to seven years ago. His name was Adolf Herseth of, of the Chicago Symphony, and right. he was just, he was the same thing. I, I took a lesson f with him one time, and I said what do you do if you're playing a concert and you have bad chops? I don't know if music critics know the word chops or not. Oh, but, yes. I, oh, I've been yelled at for overusing that word, by the way. <laughs> really? Okay. I, actually, I have a friend who wrote uh, wrote a memoir called Chops. So, um, oh. <laughs> yeah. And, and anyway, so I in this lesson, I said, what do you do if you have bad chops? And thinking that he'd tell me what he did with his lips and the breathing and all of that. And he said, I, I would just think on this passage, this is assuming that he had a really difficult passage coming up. I'd think, how would that sound if, if it was played as beautifully as it could be played? And he said he felt like he played a lot of his best concerts with bad chops. And to me, that's exactly what Schnabel's saying, I think. First here and, yeah. and then play. Another, another great, and, and I want to ask you about this, um, another great quote, I think, from Fleischer is a performer's highest goal is to discover what the music is about. You find that in the score. And, 
And so I have a I have a question about this because one of the people that I've interviewed for this podcast was Mark Gould, who or is Mark Gould, who was first trumpet with the Metropolitan Opera for quite a number of years, and um and and very opinionated and really smart, and and we're sort of on opposite sides of of the the ocean, I guess, in terms of interpretation. And we were using the Hindemith Trumpet Sonata as an example. And there's a place where a section ends before the development section that it ends fortissimo. And Glenn Gould recorded it with members of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and he does a diminuendo to pianissimo. And and Mark thought it was beautiful. And I was thinking, well, but Hindemith didn't write that. And so the idea of of you find that in the score, what is your take on on somebody being so liberal with the score if it, if it works, but it's not what the composer wrote. Do you have thoughts about that? I'm a great proponent of the, if you can, if you can sell it to me, I'll buy it school okay. of thinking about it. You know, like, yes, I don't believe you should take wide liberties with things, but I mean, coming from the opera world, um, I've seen wild interpretive stagings that had nothing to do with what, say, Wagner thought he was writing. And I've seen very traditional stagings. And I've seen both be terrific and I've seen both be abysmal. And uh-huh. so I am leery of prescription. I think that that kind of consideration of the score is something you want. Like I abhor stage directors who come in and can't read music and so just stick whatever they want up there. And I think that kind of answers your question. Like yes. I think you do have to... I think you have to know what's in the score and know why you're making the choices you're making. Yes. Um, and, and if the choice you make is something that maybe isn't in the score, then, then you need to know why you're doing that. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, one thing I, that, that I did think about reading the book also is, do you think a great artist has to be self-centered? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think they do, but I think some are. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cause Leon Fleischer um, in the book to me, I mean, an incredibly, well, a great man, an incredibly impressive man, but also to me seemed pretty self-centered. Is that a, that's a judgment call, of course, just from reading the book. I don't, I don't want to comment ill okay. on, the, on the dead or on such a yeah, beloved sure, figure. Sure. Let's say it's a general subject. Yes, I'm sure that anybody who knew Leon would say that, that he, there's a certain, yes, I think you have to be self-centered to get up on stage and perform like that. Yes, I yeah. don't think everybody is who does it, but I think that it helps. And I, Leon is also so much of his generation, and I didn't really understand that before I started writing that book. I mean, there was that whole generation of young American pianists who were just like whiz kids and out there and Gary Grafman and Byron Janis and Leon Fleischer and um, William Capel, of course. And, you know, the world was kind of theirs and it was a totally different world. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, what works for a pianist today didn't, I think they were really products of the 50s, you know, and I'm not saying everybody was self-centered, but I think there was like the the unthinking white male um, confidence that that shows up for a lot of those guys. And again, I say that it was it was that time, you know, that's the time it was. Uh, one thing that so I so I saw some uh, in, in in preparing for this, I saw some um, interviews and different things with Leon Fleischer. And one on YouTube, there's a masterclass that he does with Yuja Wang. Um, that's oh. have you seen that? It's it's great. No, I haven't. Oh yeah, no. she's very. Um, I don't know how old she was, quite a bit younger, of course, and very, I mean, she plays obviously great, but really pays attention to what he has to say. And, 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 you know, it seemed like it really gave her a lot of ideas 
um, to think about. Yeah, he was a kind of guru of the piano in a way that I haven't really encountered. And it's interesting when you work that closely with somebody and then see the effect he has. He really was, you know, people called him Obi-Wan Kenobi. He would come in and they were just prepared to drink from the fountain. It was wonderful to watch. It had really great effects on people. Um, that was kind of his thing, you know. <laughs> that must have been fantastic to spend that much time with him, I would think. Yeah, it was amazing. It really was. Did it change your view at all about music? I certainly felt that I learned, you know, I learned a lot from watching him about cutting through stuff. Um, did it change my view about music? No, I'm sure if I'd been a pianist, it would have changed it more, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I loved I loved watching what he did, and it did certainly, I don't know, it taught me about about life maybe you know his his focus on the details and it was a funny combination of the mystique he had a great mystique about music and he had these you know images nasa photographs on the wall of galaxies and planets and it's like that's where we're soaring and on the other hand it's like how are you playing that rest you know like uh -huh. what can you do to unclog those 16th notes play them as eighth notes and see what happens and you know these very kind of basic things that suddenly would open these windows, um, that it didn't have to be this fancy mumbo jumbo, you know, and as somebody who studied voice where it's very common to get a lot of mumbo jumbo because you don't have an instrument sitting in front of you the way you do with a piano or a violin. Right. And, um, it was, it was certainly illuminating in that way. Well, okay. So, um, I have, I have one personal question for you and that is, um, how are you getting along with Nanette Streicher? <laughs> Nanette and I are getting along wonderfully. Nanette, Great. of course, being the woman who built pianos for Beethoven. Um, I am plunged into writing a historical novel about her her life and times, I guess. I mean, she was an amazing figure, and she was in the center of musical dynasty that sort of bridges the heart of the so-called classical canon. Her father built pianos for Mozart. She built pianos for Beethoven. And her son was Brahms's favorite piano builder. So you go right through the development of the modern piano and right through the development of the classical canon with her at the heart of it. Um, so I'm having a great time. It's not going as fast as I would like, but I have like 50,000 words. So it's it's that's a big chunk of a book. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any idea when you might be finished with it? Oh, it's going to take at least another year. Um, but, you know, it's done when it's done. Yeah. And, <laughs> so, and will you go through her son working with Brahms as well? Yeah, I'm working in a lot about the development of the piano and the technology. Um, and I'll certainly touch on her son. Um, the, the fun of it being a novel is it gives you a lot of freedom. Um, I mean, I could have had freedom with a nonfiction book, too, I suppose. But... Uh, um, the other part of it that really has jazzed me is that the discovery, um, when I first encountered Nanette and thought about writing about her, I assumed she was a unicorn because it was a truism to me that women couldn't achieve much in that age, and yet she did. And she was the first subject or potential subject I'd found in that age who didn't seem limited by having been a woman. Usually it's like what I could have achieved if only I had been a man. And in her case, she just achieved it. She had a successful piano business. She married the guy she loved. She had kids who liked her, you know, sort of her son took over the business. What's the problem? And, uh, and her husband was really supportive and didn't cheat on her or anything like really, or not that I know of. Um, but I, the more I researched, the more I realized that she wasn't a unicorn. There were a lot 
of strong women, and she was surrounded at every turn by mentors, by close friends, by mentees. Uh, the number of strong, supportive, talented women I've encountered in my research, I was not prepared for. And giving a woman's eye view of the classical world at that time is really exhilarating. And I didn't know what I was in for when I started this. Is is it really different writing, um, I guess, a novel, even though it's a historical novel, a novel as opposed to writing the biographies of a couple of people? Is your writing style different? Oh, I would hope my writing style is different from every book. You just told yeah. me my, my yes, writing style yeah, is different true. from yeah. Leanne Fleischer yeah. and Herbert. So as I said, I'm wildly flattered because I've always been worried they were a little too much the same. Um, but I always, my goal in life was always to write novels. I always wanted to be a writer, a fiction writer, and I never wanted to be a journalist. So either that means I'll fall completely on my face or that this is finally getting to do what I really wanted. But either way, I'm happy trying. Um, it doesn't feel, it feels like returning to my natural element is what it feels like. It doesn't feel difficult at all. I mean, there's a lot of wrestling with it because writing a book is a hard thing and figuring out what you want to do with it is a hard thing. But um, it feels like um, my own wrestles, as it were. <laughs> well, since since you started out wanting to be a novelist, I mean, do you have favorite authors or one favorite author or a couple? <laughs> Uh, many, many favorite authors. Um, I will say that one huge influence for this book is the highly underrated female writer, since you asked about underrated female writers, Penelope Fitzgerald, <laughs> whose book, The Blue Flower about Novalis, is an amazing novel. Um, and she didn't start publishing until she was in her late 50s, I think. Um, I grew up with the trinity of the unlikely for a young woman trinity of Joyce Proust and Hemingway. Wow. All of whom okay. are, are, you know, amazing and amazing writers and huge influences and in many ways problematic. And I would have to cite Virginia Woolf as a lifelong influence as well. But there are many, many, many people. And uh, I would also mention the poet Jonathan Williams, who, you know, who was a personal friend and mentor and was a, a publisher and poet and published many, many marginal and less known figures starting in the 1950s and did a lot of amazing work. Do you, well, you'll have an editor for this book? Presumably I'll have a publisher at some point yeah. for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. And the publisher will have an editor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, I hadn't thought about asking this, but I mean, a lot of people like are like self-publishing now and they're being very successful with it. I don't know if it's novelists true. are doing that as much as... Oh, yeah. I think really? a lot of novelists are. I mean, I would prefer to go the old fashioned bout unless absolutely nobody takes it. But 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 yeah, one can't rule that out. Absolutely. Please join us in the bonus room where we talk about the possibility of building a career through social media and historical versus modern interpretation of Baroque music. If you enjoyed this interview, please feel free to leave a review.